Hey friends, we're here today with Abby Westerman, co-founder and CEO of Be Present. Be Present was established in memory of Kirsten, whose battle with cancer inspired us to improve the experience for both young adults with cancer and their supporters. Be Present is working to provide the resources that they wish to have had as part of the support network. And they want to ignite a movement among young adults to amplify the importance of presence. Abby, welcome to the show and thank you for chatting with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to be today. Awesome. Yeah, we're excited to share your story. Um, and to share that story, we're going to jump right into the heart of this discussion. I really believe that everyone through their travels, life, and experiences collects these beliefs that make us who we are. Tell us, share with us, what is a core idea or belief that you hold to be so true? The most important thing for me is that people realize there's nothing more important than being present for others. Mm. There is nothing more important than being present for others. And today we're going to tell Abby's story and the story of be present and really learn that lesson. So Abby, why don't you, uh, why don't you give us the, uh, the quick start here on uh, what be present is in your words. And then after that, we'll go to the origins and talk about how you've grown it from an idea to what it is today. So what is be present in your words? Yeah, be present is really just, it's, it's a means to an end. And that is that a lot of young adults, which is our, basically our target audience, don't have the life experience or the um, tools and information to really know what it means to be present for others. And um, as to supporters ourselves, we really struggled with that as well. And I think a lot of my daughter's supporters did. And so Be Present is really about um, looking at the whole spectrum of an experience with cancer from even before the diagnosis happens to uh, through survivorship. And really what we're trying to do in all of those phases is, is help the young adults um, with, with the idea of presence. So we have two programs, uh, Be Aware, which is planting the seeds of presence and really helping people understand that there really is nothing more important than being present and how to actually do that for somebody else and, and have that priority in mind. And then Be Connected is our second program and that is really focused on once the diagnosis happens, making sure that those peers and friends stay connected with the person going through the diagnosis and treatment of cancer uh, so that they can have the best quality of life possible while they're struggling with, with the rest of their upheaval life. Mm. So obviously this, uh, this nonprofit, this organization is extremely personal to you. Can you tell us uh, the quick version of your story leading up to starting this nonprofit and then the actual origin of everything? Sure. So it, it started with my daughter Kirsten's diagnosis, and she was a junior in college when she actually was diagnosed with leukemia. And she had the type of leukemia that required her to be in the hospital the entire time. And she, just in a sentence, was one of those people that got her energy from others. And so to be isolated from family and school and friends and just life in general, and again, as a young adult, where everything is just starting to happen, it was really, really hard for her. And the bottom line is that when quality of life is poor uh, and when you feel lonely and isolated, it really impacts your response to treatment. And uh, I saw that with her uh, 
very much over the course of her seven months. And um, so really what we saw was that her friends just struggled and this is a common story. The, the, the peers just, don't, again, don't know what to do or say and oftentimes uh, that's enough to keep them away and it's not anything malicious. It's just, it's struggling with what to do. And so that really inspired us and Kirsten was the one that was the strongest advocate, but inspired us to, to take her vision for change and, and really carry it forward for others who will be going through the same thing. Hmm. So what year was, was that happening at? So she was diagnosed in 2015 in July and then passed away in, in uh, February of 2016. So. Inside 2015, when you first get that diagnosis, was it just kind of like business as usual, life's going on, life is good, and then this comes out of left field without it just having any real idea where it came from? Absolutely, yes. It was one of those things where everybody was uh, – busy on the fast train uh, with life, pursuing dreams, working hard. And uh, it, was, it was a phone call that I never expected to ever get. And uh, in fact, when she, when she told me the diagnosis, because she was actually in the emergency room, and we were just you know, talking back and forth about what's next or whatever. So when she first told me that uh, the doctor said that she had leukemia, I, I actually had to pause for a minute and um, was hoping that I had misheard her or that she had misheard the doctor and actually asked her if that's what the doctor said. Is she sure that that's what he said? Um, and then when she responded with, yeah, why is it bad? Um, I knew that we were in for a ride. Hmm. Are there different stages of leukemia? And did you know a stage that she was at at that point? Um, well, so again, we really didn't know too much about the, even the, 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 uh, cancer in general or leukemia, but when she was diagnosed, it was like the week before she was at the beach hanging out with friends and then she just got really sick all of a sudden. And so that's why she was just in the emergency room. We thought that she was just very ill. Um, but by the time she got there, uh, she was probably a, a, um, a day away from being in the ICU. Her, her blood counts were so high. And the doctor knew immediately when he saw her uh, what was going on, but uh, she, I mean, cancer is not something that they think about with, a, with, a, with flu symptoms or whatever, or being tired, the other things that may have led up to it, you never think that it's cancer. And so I think it was that much more shocking for not only us, but for her friends as well. For, with the goal of be present, uh, to be present and be that support system that needs to be there. Can you help shed some light on what are some of those emotions? Like uh, there's probably some, some shock in the initial parts of that. And then there's some acceptance and then there's, you know, can you talk us through just come a couple of those stages and the emotions that the family is feeling during that period? Yeah. So it's interesting. The, the first few weeks are just really chaotic. It's, it's about absorbing just the fact that, that somebody, this young has cancer. Um, and it wasn't only just for us. And we, my, her, my husband and I were basically her primary caregivers and were with her in the hospital pretty much every day. And so us absorbing, we were just taking it one day at a time. You know, we were, there really wasn't any time to think about or reflect on what was going on. You were just kind of there. Uh, and it was a machine gun of information, learning everything you ever wanted to know about cancer and more. And then with her friends, um, there was definitely, and this is again a pattern across pretty much all young adults, is that 
there's this you know flurry of concern at the beginning and lots of visits and lots of updating everybody um, and then I would say within the first few weeks uh, it starts to get really quiet um, and that's really when the treatment starts to kind of kick in they actually started her treatment you know within a day or two after being admitted to the hospital uh, so there really wasn't time to think or reflect on fertility options or any of that stuff it was like we have to do this now um, but again you know for, for her friends um, I think you know they they wanted to be there for her and they did a really great job of showing up and letting her know that she was there but because she was so sick at the beginning i think a lot of times too she didn't really know what was going on and then you know like i say throughout treatment you know that's that's really the period of time where things have settled in the the chaos of the cancer aspect of it is you know you kind of the the support team at the hospital and everybody else that's been working with you all of that kind of settles out that lack of knowledge they're still you know daily things that happen and the roller coaster continues. But, but that's really when the long haul of, um, you know, making sure that she has that connection to the outside world. And, and she would stay connected with friends, but I think um, it became more intermittent, the school kicked in. Uh, and then she, she had finished her treatment. Um, you know, it was, it was a long seven months with, you know, chemo and then a recovery time and then chemo. Um, and so when she had finished treatment, we thought, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, we were, she was ready to move back down here and start life again and had a whole new perspective on where she wanted to go. And uh, that's when things went sideways and over a weekend, she passed away. You know, it was just complications came, came out of nowhere and none of her friends even had a chance to say goodbye. And I think that was really a struggle for all of them because again, getting back to this concept of being present, uh, when you know, or you feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, it's like, well, you know, I, I can, I'll go see her tomorrow or when she's done with treatment or whatever. And this concept of presence, you know, there's no time. I mean, do it now because you never know if tomorrow will come um, is, is part of that, you know, the trilogy of presence, you know, mm. no time like the present to be present because it's the best present of all. So mm. I, I really feel like, um, you know, there's, you can't, you can't, put off what you don't know what the future holds and you, but you can change their future by being present for them in the moment. After that, there's a, there's a grieving period. Can you talk about the importance of support during that time as well? And some of the things that you learned about uh, the good or the bad of support networks for that portion? Yeah, so that's, it's, it's interesting. We were almost living, I think, parallel worlds in terms of, you know, the isolation aspect, but, but in the grieving process, it's another one that's just a difficult topic for people to talk about, to know what to do or to say or how to help, which is kind of the same as when there's a diagnosis, you don't know what to do or say or how to help. Uh, and there's just a stigma, you know, with grief and death, uh, with cancer as well, uh, that makes it just difficult for people who you were talking to yesterday and suddenly there's this thing that, you know, this wall that's created with whatever the, the word is, that's the stigma and people just struggle with um, that interaction for some reason, it interferes with their ability to, to maintain that same social connection. Um, and so for us, it was kind of the same way. I mean, we had, you know, that, that, that surrounding of all of the people and all of the, the condolences and everything, which we very much appreciated. I think that was something that really helped us get through it. 
Um, when you lose a child, you know, they're born, they're a piece of you. And when you lose them, you feel that peace go away. I mean, it is a palpable pain that you feel. And um, so it really meant a lot for both of us to have, you know, the people around us to provide support. And there was people that provided meals and other things. But again, there's, there is also that, you know, kind of once the, the chaos is over, there's a very long period of quiet where you wonder if people have forgotten and moved on, you know, I mean, it's just all of those feelings. And again, it's parallel to what Kirsten I'm sure experienced with, you know, has everybody just moved on or, or, or what? Um, and so it, in founding the organization, I think that was really the first time I felt like all of that uh, frustration with what happened and the outcome um, and just, you know, you can go into a, you can go to a dark place with all of that and be, you know, it, it be um, sad and uh, non-productive. And so for me, I think, uh, and with her friends too, we talked, we talked about this, you know, a few months after Kirsten passed away, that probably the best thing that we could do is rather than hope it would be different for other people, that we would, um, turn that darkness into light by by uh, picking up where Kirsten left off and basically try and, and make it so that others that are, you know, find out about a friend that's been diagnosed have the tools and information that they can feel better about being there for them and be more consistent with that support. Um, and so that's kind of what led to the healing process, I think, for all of us. So throughout this time, I mean, you clearly experienced firsthand the power of of presence and, and the power of, of lack of presence, the good mm -hmm. and the bad. Mm -hmm. uh, how far, how far after, at what point do the conversations uh, with, with her friends in that group turn to, Hey, we're going to, we're going to actually do something and, and we're going to actually start a nonprofit to do something. Right. So I think the conversations really started kind of in the fall of 2016. And I remember we had, you know, conversations around our dinner table, basically talking about, uh, the name of the organization and how we were going to do it and what would the focus be. And that's when we talked about, you know, there's different things that are out there for helping, you know, cancer patients and survivors, but there really was nothing out there that focused on helping the, you know, the peer support network, that social support network that's so, so desperately needed and desired by the, by the cancer patient. Um, and so that's when we were really sort of figuring out, how we were going to do this. And, uh, and then on the one year anniversary of Kirsten's passing away, so February of 2017, we actually had a launch party and announced our intent to, uh, to start the organization Be Present. But it was, it was uh, coming to form, you know, like I say, the, the fall of 2016. So it didn't take long for us to, to feel like there was something more that we wanted to do and, and were inspired. Uh, by what Kirsten had started to to keep that going. Can you talk to us about the the first program, or did did both programs launch at the same time? How did that kind of progress? Yeah, so both programs, uh, be aware, um, the awareness campaign, and really started first. Uh, but in the background, we were working a couple of elements on the be connected side. But so for the the be aware campaign again, it's really about creating that awareness amongst the, the general young adult population because we never know who's going to get the call, right? And so you can't be learning all of this stuff as soon as you hear the, the diagnosis. You want to at least plant that seed that if they remember nothing else, 
they need to remember to be present when they get that call. Um, don't let fear or anything else, you know, change your mind. Remember that that presence has an impact for the person that's going through treatment and to stick with it. It's going to be hard for both of the, the people that are involved, but you got to stick with it because it really will make a difference. Um, and so the, the awareness campaign, uh, we, we started our, all of our social um, uh, campaign in October of, of 2018. And um, that's really when, when that part of it launched. Um, and prior to that was really uh, the strategic planning process of how are we going to do this and, and who is our audience and, and how are we going to move forward. Um, and then uh, that pretty much took off with just starting to create that content. And, and it's not just focused on cancer. It's like I say, it's focused on just helping them understand the importance of presence, gaining those experiences and, and feeling that impact in whatever way they're present for other people. Uh, and remember, you know, reinforcing how, how much that uh, means to people. Um, and then Be Connected, we actually developed a, a tool um, that is called Be There that um, is in uh, beta uh, and will be launched officially in the next week or so, but uh, it's available on the website now. And that really is, is designed to, to help the, um, the patient and the supporter stay connected. So to kind of ease that whole process of asking for and, and providing support. Um, so, you know, they were sort of staggered in launch, but the awareness campaign came first. And then, uh, and then we have more uh, content that we're, we're developing uh, coming up here for the, for the Be Connected side as well in terms of providing those resources to help once that diagnosis happens. Awesome. So it sounds like the initial, the initial um, kind of mission was, all right, we need to first and foremost spread awareness and educate on uh, on this process so that people have a general understanding before it happens of, of what to expect and, and how to support, et cetera. And then from there, you said, well, we need to make sure that our patients are connected and that's connecting them to the multitude of resources that are available as well as connected more appropriately to the support network. And that is then where the Be There tool is birthed out of, uh, which sounds like an absolutely incredible, incredible tool. Uh, it is a, it's a big jump even just to start a nonprofit, but to then say, no, you know what? We want our nonprofit to actually make a technology product that's going to be a game changer. Can you tell us that story of when you first have this idea for a technology product and how a nonprofit were to go about pulling off launching a technology platform? Yeah, so um, I think... It, it was one of those early ideas. So when, after Kirsten passed away, one of the first things I did was I made a list. And that list was, there was just a lot of different things associated with the cancer experience, um, both in terms of support and the, the technologies available to stay connected. And that was one of the ones on my list that I just felt was so important. Um, we had used uh, CaringBridge uh, to communicate with family and friends, um, during Kirsten's treatment, but I, it just, it, I don't think it really resonated with the young adult community and their uh, busy schedule and life. Uh, I mean, they would read it, but at the end of reading it, they still didn't know how they could help, you know, what they needed, if it was okay to come by and visit and that sort of thing. And so, so it was, it just sort of grew out of that sense that young adults are busy, 
Uh, we need to make it very clear what the needs are so that they can, you know, figure out how they, they can help and in, in a means that's helpful to the, to the, to the patient uh, at that moment in time. And um, so it was really about including both, you know, a, a scheduling aspect, a, you know, a wish aspect, and then also um, communicating just that emotional state and desire for visits. Because a lot of times it's hard to say, no, I don't want visitors today. I'm not feeling very good. Uh, because you don't want people to think, oh, well, I just won't, you know, go by. It's just in that moment. So it's, and it, it kind of takes away all of the neutralizes the stress associated with communicating those kinds of feelings. And so combining all of that together, uh, we felt like was a way to, to simplify that whole process of, of um, asking for and providing support. And by doing that, what you preserve is uh, the support network because they're like, hey, this isn't, you know, I know what I need to do. I know if I have time available, that's, you know, I, that's when I can go by. And, and it just makes it a little simpler as opposed to more of a serial process where you call one person, can they come by? Nope, can't do that. You know, and you just have to kind of go through the phone list or whatever. So it was, it was really a means to simplify all of that and still get them what they need and show up for them in, in, in the way that, you know, their emotional state was on a particular day. Yeah, it sounds like the Be There tool is such a great dynamic solution for an, a constantly changing situation, which is, you know, the state of the hospital room, the emotional state, the mental state. And the important part is that a, someone who's going through a treatment journey like that always needs support. But if we can line up that with when they want and can accept the support, that's when it's going to make the biggest difference. And that's what the Be There tool sounds like helps accomplish. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, they communicate as much as they need to, and it's okay to not want visitors for a couple of weeks if you're not feeling good. And then, and it just makes it easier because a lot of times what we do is we hold back, right? Oh, I really want to call them, but I'm not sure if I'm going to interrupt. So I won't call them today. And then that spirals into you've waited too long and now you're embarrassed to call or whatever. And so by them being able to just take a look and say, oh, they don't want visitors today, that's okay. But oh, hey, look, they've got something that they need today that I can send so I can still be present, just not physically present. Hmm. Oh, and then on other days, it's like, hey, yeah, they're up for visitors. I'll uh, see if I can make some time in my schedule and, and bring by that you know, item that they were asking for. So yeah, it's really about making the communication clear, simple, quick to respond to. And in every moment, it's, it's meaningful to the person that needs that support. From the supporter side, it sounds like there's two two hurdles that need to get uh, jumped. The first being, you know, making the time and not not second guessing making that time. So making the time a priority and and calling, visiting, etc. And then the second hurdle would seem to be knowing what to say or what not to say. Mm -hmm. Can you give some advice on that second hurdle? Yeah, I think as far as, and we've, we've implemented what we've called talking tips uh, in our awareness campaign. And it's really about um, the most important thing, again, is being present in the moment with that person and, and you know, following their cues when you're in the room with them. Um, but it's, it's, it's really about just showing up and being okay with the fact that it you know, it may be messy in the conversation, but not to change how you interact with them just simply because they have this diagnosis. Continue to bring that normalcy to them that they so desperately need during this time. Because that's, I mean, with everything else going crazy, that's the one thing that helps them 
kind of stay connected and grounded. And so, um, you know, just being thoughtful about, you know, what you say and how you act. And it's just very simple, like with our talking tips, we, what we do is a side-by-side -side comparison of what people often say, like mm -hmm. with losing hair, for example, oh, it'll just grow back. Uh, well, to the, to the person that's losing the hair, uh, that's not a helpful statement. It's kind of dismissive to what they're going through. Um, and it's really acknowledging, yes, you look different without hair, but it doesn't change how I feel about you. I mean, it's a, a different way of responding to their, you know, their angst about having lost hair. Um, and if you can just understand those little subtle differences about what you do or say, um, and be sensitive to whether they want to talk about their illness today or whether they want to talk about, you know, what all the friends have been up to, um, you know, in both cases, those conversations are important, but you have to be present in the, in the moment with them in order to understand what it is they're looking for in terms of conversation and interact, you know, accordingly. Some, some days they may just want you to listen. Don't try and be the fixer on days when they just want you to listen. Because what it does when you're trying to fix things is it invalidates the feelings they're feeling sometimes as well. Wow. Seems like there'd be a really delicate balance between, well, I don't want to ask anything about their illness or how they're feeling, um, but I also don't want it to come off as if I'm avoiding it, uh, but I also don't know if they want to talk about it. Uh, what's the advice for navigating that, that interesting balance on the supporter side? Yeah, and that's a really tough one. And I think it's, you know, it's very uh, individual with who the person is. I think uh, there's some people, I mean, Kristen was very, uh, very much, uh, you know, in, direct with saying how she felt. And so I think she would have been fine with people saying, hey, you know, I just, I really don't know what to say. Uh, help me, you know, let, let's kind of figure this out. Um, but often what would happen is, you know, on a day maybe when she wanted to talk a little bit about what was going on with her, if, you know, the, the conversation would suddenly be changed to something that was more upbeat or whatever, right? You know, they don't want to talk about the sad stuff for too long. And that's hard. So again, you know, you have to embrace the silence. Like, it, again, if, if, uh, if they want to just be able to talk, you just got to sit there and listen and, and resist the urge to kind of interject. Um, but also, you know, you can show up and just say, hey, what do you feel like doing today? And, and, and open it up to them to say, you know, to start that conversation with, you know, this has been such a crappy day. I just, I just want to hear what's going on with you guys and, you know, how's school going or whatever. And on another day, uh, it may be you say, hey, you know, what do you want to do today? You know, I, here's what's been going on with me with the treatment. And this is what, you know, but, but, but be open to either of those conversations by starting it with, you know, what, what would you like to do today or talk about today? Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, like I say, just pay attention. I mean, don't overstay your welcome and, and those kinds of things too, because sometimes if they're not feeling well, again, they want you to be there so badly, but they also aren't feeling well. And so just kind of follow those cues as you're interacting with them to know timing and, and uh, when it's time to change the conversation and when it's not time to change the conversation. I can imagine that that uh, the fear of not knowing what to say would would is what stops a lot of people from calling or visiting. Mm -hmm. uh, but talking about presence, you know, one of the most important parts is that it starts with the presence, whether it's on the phone or in person. Just your presence is already having some healing effects, and then from there, you're going to figure out what to say, how to say it, and uh, 
And so, yeah, just, the, it's an interesting, uh, what an interesting, just kind of like we get in our own heads of, oh, I just, I don't know what I'm going to say. So I, I just can't call. I'm not going to go. But, uh, but just our presence is, is enough to kick off some, some healing. Absolutely. Yeah. We do get in our own way quite a lot when it comes to that stuff, when we, we should just, you know, let, let it be the way it has been um, and, and go from there and just know that the, the connection you had before the diagnosis hasn't changed. So don't let it change by creating that wall. Mm, that's really powerful. The connection you had before the diagnosis hasn't changed. So don't let it change. That's awesome. Um, so where's Be Present at today? What's the team structure look like, uh, board, volunteers, and, and where are we going tomorrow? Yeah, so uh, again, we started with you know, the, the board, which was uh, three of Kirsten's best friends and supporters uh, joined me in, in forming the organization. And they've, they've been amazing. I mean, they are um, so uh, excited and enthusiastic about just the mission. They dearly loved Kirsten, obviously, so with her in, in their hearts and, and the mission for being able to make a di difference for others. They're all um, very engaged uh, as, as far as board members go, which I'm, I feel very fortunate to have that because not all organizations are you know, lucky enough to have everybody actively engaged. Um, <clears throat> and we're primarily a volunteer organization. I work full time as a CEO, but it's all volunteer. Um, and then we have uh, a couple of other volunteers that provide you know, services and support with our digital content and some of the other just administrative functions. And then I have uh, two uh, teams that I subcontract to that are helping us out with uh, the awareness campaign and then also with the development of the, the Be There tool. So still a rel relatively small organization, uh, less than a dozen people. Um, and then of course, um, like I say, the community that surrounds us with support, we've been very fortunate uh, in that regard, too, is uh, the people that you know knew Kirsten, and now we're extending you know beyond that circle uh, out into the community in general. And even um, with our advisory board, we have uh, connections with both hospitals that Kirsten was being treated, uh, both at Stanford and down here in San Diego at Radies Hospital. Um, they've been actively involved with uh, where we're headed and helping us understand you know. What the priorities are and where the gaps are so that we can all move forward together so it's been i i just feel like um this is something special and people will see it it always takes time with a nonprofit to kind of get off the ground and gain that momentum but but that it's such a simple concept that can be used in so many different uh phases of our life uh, for so many different uh, experiences and people that we will meet along the way that it's not just a one and done kind of thing. It'll, it's, it's something that will empower us forever and it will make lives better for many. And so I think people see that and they're, they all see the importance and have seen the importance of having friends surround the, the patient, the survivor, and help them kind of move forward together. And so um, where we're at and where we're going, both of our programs are up and running now we are at a tipping point where we've kind of laid the foundation we had a workshop last year we actually brought together survivors supporters medical professionals and had that frank conversation from all perspectives of you know the, just how hard it is from everybody's you know view 
to, to provide support or to ask for support. And so I think that was actually a, a really powerful thing to allow everybody to kind of appreciate the other, pers other perspective. Um, but out of that workshop, they had, uh, we have some recommendations that we're moving forward with as well to try and improve the support uh, for young adults. Um, so yeah, just uh, 2020 was um, always looked to be the, the year of growth and, and that's try what we're doing. We're, we're trying to, to get everything moving and it means growing the team, it means uh, growing the programs, growing the community. And um, we're, we're not gonna stop till uh, we've, we've really made an impact and continue to make an impact. And so we're really excited about where we're headed. Amazing. For anyone that is, is wanting to be part of that impact, uh, hears the story and wants to support, you know, there, there are definitely a couple ways, obviously from the awareness side, uh, as a supporter, tap into to the social media accounts, the website of Be Present, um, and they're giving some talking tips, some awesome, awesome tools for supporters to learn how to be the best supporter that they can be for that loved one or friend going through a tough time. And on the patient side, there's, there's uh, the Be Connected resources and the Be There tool, which uh, Abby's based out of San Diego. Um, we're in the early May of 2020 right now, and that tool will be launching shortly. And I imagine that once that's launched, it would be uh, able to be utilized uh, in any state from anywhere. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, it's the beta version. So we're excited to have people use it and let us know what they think so that we can continue to make it better. Great. Yeah. So if you know a patient uh, today or tomorrow um, that you think uh, would be up for trying this as a way to just receive the best support possible um, from the people that they love, definitely head to uh, b-present.org. And you can find out more about the Be There tool um, on the site there. Um, Abby, you said, you said uh, a phrase that I want to, to come back to as we start to wrap up here. Um, it started with, there's no time like the present. Do you mind just, just saying that again for us? Because it was really poetic. Yeah, so, so the, the tagline actually we used at the, the launch party was, there's no time like the present to be present. It's the best present of all. Mm. So we were talking today, friends, about just how there is nothing more important than being present for others. Uh, human connection is, is very clearly uh, something that matters to, to every human being. There's no time like the present to be present. It's the best present of all is an incredibly uh, beautiful way to capture, to capture what that means. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you the stage here, Abby, to, to take us home and wrap us up. Um, any final thoughts that you have or want to share with, uh, with the listeners about be present, about being present, uh, and about what to do, uh, moving forward. Yeah, I think, I think, like I said, the, the most important thing for me is that, um, every single person just remembers and, and closes their eyes for a moment moment when they get that diagnosis or they get that phone call or they know that there's a friend that's in need to close their eyes for a second and and remove any of the fear or other things that's holding them back and to really find the courage and and the the, uh, the power to to be there with that person because quality of life whether it's for a day or a month or a year or a lifetime is so important and quality of life, a big contributor is presence. And so we're looking forward to, to making a difference with the young adults in the cancer community. 
but we really see this being something that it's a skill that people will be able to use in all different situations as they move through their life and life experiences. And the more times you do it, the better you are at it. It's still hard every time because every situation is different. But um, just going back to that, that basic premise to be okay with it, it being messy, um, but just to be present and you'll, you'll figure it out together. I love it. We've been chatting today, friends, with Abby Westerman, the co-founder and CEO of Be Present. You can check out their website, be-present.org. And they're also on social media, um, probably coming out with a podcast soon, but I'll uh, let you head to their website to check out what that's all about. Uh, but Abby, thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, for starting Be Present and for the amazing that work that you do uh, to uh, help the support networks and to help uh, young adults and, and folks battling a tough time in the hospital. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. Awesome.